in your Bibles, if you'd please turn to the book of Exodus. We'll continue in our time together walking through the scriptures and walking through Exodus. Exodus uh, is a book that tells a story of God's liberation of the Israelites out of Egypt. I was uh, tempted this morning. I received a text from a friend. Uh, his name's Mike, and he said, you know, you could use this as your sermon outline today. And then pretty generic, you know, Notre Dame won, Alabama lost, God is good, <laughs> repent and be baptized. So um, if that's, you know, I know, know that I'm in Notre Dame country, and I'm trying to accept that still. Uh, but Michigan won and Michigan State won as well. So those are important things. So God does show his sustaining good goodness in the world, right? Now, all kidding aside and all that nonsense, who cares about it, right? Uh, today is about God. Today is about Jesus Christ and his liberation and his love for us. The book of Exodus is this power, powerful echo throughout the story of God, throughout the entire Bible, is a story of God delivering his people out of difficult situations where only the only reason, the only possible sort of solution is the majesty and power and might of God. And the story of Exodus is the sort of root story, the foundational story of God's uh, name being declared and known and the glory of God's name spreading throughout creation. We know God as we do today because of how God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. We know God as a mighty and powerful deliverer because of what he did all those many years ago. It, there are curious things that happen in the book of Exodus. And one of them is, is that there is a lot of deliberation and a lot of lack of knowledge over who the pharaohs actually were. They don't know the names of the pharaohs. But they know the names of the, uh, of the midwives. They know the names uh, of this shepherd who was wandering around in the, uh, in the fields uh, in the middle of nowhere. We know Moses' name. We know uh, of the midwives' names. We know all of these sort of minor players, but we don't know the names of the pharaohs. It's a sort of insult on Egypt, as if they aren't insulted enough throughout the story. But in the ancient world... There was no mightier nation than Egypt. And Israel, they have found themselves uh, in a precarious situation because God has allowed them to flourish and grow. And God uh, hears their cries of the people because uh, Pharaoh is threatened by them. They, they are, uh, Pharaoh and his people are fearful that, you know, hey, if these, all these folks start realizing, if we get on the same page you know, we could take them down, you know, so Pharaoh starts bearing down on them and creates all sorts of conflict. And what God does with this conflict, what God does with this is all about his glory, his splendor, his name being made great. And so this morning, if you would begin with me in prayer, and we'll ask God to uh, continue to guide our time together. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we come today knowing of your might and your splendor because of the story we're about to tell and read together and enjoy together. 
Lord, we thank you that you are a God that responds to the cries of your people. Or that we come here today knowing that if we call to you, you will answer. You will hear from us. That you are not a distant God that, have, that has removed yourself from our situation, but you are a God who has not only responded in the past, but you are responding in present. You know of our hurt and our suffering, our grief. You know the challenges that we face, the hardships in our marriage, the hardships in our finances or other relationships. You, Lord, know the difficulty of, uh, that we all face and the concerns we have for our children, concerns for our community and our world. Lord, you hear the cries of our heart knowing that we need you, we need your help, we need your deliverance today just as the Israelites needed deliverance in the past. God, you are here and you're with us. And help us, Lord, as we walk through your word. Reveal yourself to us that we might know you and give you glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Exile presents two challenges. Uh, exile, at, over a long period of time, presents a difficult situation for the Israelites. It's been 400 years that that the Israelites are not in the land of Canaan, but they're in the land of Egypt. And over those 400 years, something has developed, and it's a twofold problem. And the problem is, is that they are now ignorant of God, and they don't understand the presence of God, or they are missing the presence of God. It's reached the point where they have forgotten their story, they have forgotten their past, to the point where they might say, I do not know the Lord. And so exile presents a twofold problem, and we're going to cover over the next two weeks both problems. Ignorance of God and a lack of presence. And Exodus, the book of Exodus, solves both problems. And the first chunk, what we'll cover this morning, is about the ignorance of God. And the story, the familiar story, if you saw Charlton Heston's performance in Moses, uh, as Moses. I mean, is there really a finer performance in any theatrical movement? I mean, at this, it just, it's a moving portrayal of Moses. And anyways, um, I love the movie. It's great, but I'm derailing severely. So, uh, but in the story of, of Exodus, of Pharaoh and Moses and God using Moses to deliver the Israelites, the first opening chapters, all the way through uh, chapter 15, is this sort of uh, education for everyone to know that there is no God like the God of Israel. No one else compares in might, no one else compares in power, in name, in anything. God is the greatest. If you were to live in Egypt for 400 years, though, you would have never heard of the God of Israel. You would never have heard Yahweh being one that they worshipped. There were several other gods. They had gods for the sea, they had gods for the earth, they had gods for the heavens and the sky. And all of them were worshipped for various reasons and purposes, most of them so that, you know, that they could have food on the ground or that they would have shelter or protection or that there would be sunshine and rain and there would be all of the seasons and all. It, it was all this structure to sort of create order and control in life. 
But there was one God who was not worshipped. Amid all the gods that were being worshipped, there was one who wasn't, and it's Yahweh. It's the Lord God of Israel. And as we pick up uh, in the story of God's uh, word and God's people, we find in Exodus chapter 5, we'll just simply start there and we'll cover some ground this morning. In Exodus 5, afterward Moses and Aaron, they went to Pharaoh. And they said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. All this is about worship. It's about having a party, a festival, out in the wilderness so that they might worship God. And this is what Pharaoh says. The Lord God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. I don't know who this God is. I don't know who you're speaking of. I have no reason to be fearful of him. I will not listen to him. And so Pharaoh sort of puts his position in place. I don't know who he is. I'm not going to respond to him. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking this people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. And so that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. But don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So Pharaoh, he bears down on them. He, he tells them, you know, get back to work. Make life more difficult for them. Why are they trying to get out of, uh, of work? This is, this is a sort of behavior problem. They're lazy. They don't, you know, we need to keep them working hard. It's all rooted in this ignorance of who God is. If he would have known who God was and just simply asking to worship, when we know who the Lord is, we can't help but worship him. We can't help but sing praises to him when we know the Lord. But Pharaoh doesn't. And without practicing their faith, many of the Israelites are not uncertain as to who their Lord is. They have their own ignorance. They've forgotten the stories of their past and they've forgotten what God has done and they themselves are asking the question, who is this Lord? And why is our life being made more difficult? And they cry out to Moses and they say, Listen, you've made life more difficult than it was before. Like what you're offering, we no longer want. The struggle in the present suffering and the struggle that they are all facing, the things that they are enduring, it feels like it's no longer worth worshiping God for them. We, uh, as we look through the text and we jump down then into Exodus uh, chapter 6, uh, we can, uh, we'll, we'll jump to 22 in chapter, uh, chapter 5. Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has 
brought trouble on this people. And you've not rescued your people at all. Like, this isn't going very good. It hasn't started out very well, God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do, what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. There will be zero question as to how Israel is delivered out of Egypt. It is only through the mighty hand of God that this problem is going to be resolved. It is only through God's strength. It is only through God's outstretched arms that God will deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. It is only through God reaching through into the brokenness, reaching into the suffering, reaching into the pain. It is God's outstretched hands that will deliver the people from their slavery. God says to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. God is reassuring Moses, I hear them, I've worked in the past, I worked with Abraham, and this, uh, I don't have time to diverge, but Abraham's story matches up with what happens in Exodus in kind of some fun, crazy ways. They all go to Egypt, and there's, I don't have time for all of it. It's really cool, and you can talk to me about it later. Anyways, uh, and I realize it's cool to maybe two other people, so anyways, uh, they're like, good job, Bible nerds, way to go. Uh, I don't know what that was, whatever. But God, God is working his story repeatedly of showing his faithfulness, redeeming God's people, drawing them out, and it's God's outstretched arm that he is going to make himself known. There is... Then, as we progress through the story in these moments, we see in verse 6, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then... You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. If you underline your Bible, underline, then you will know that I am the Lord. That is the thrust of everything God is doing. That these people would know that the Lord is God, that the God of Israel is the Lord over all creation, that they would know who he is. And I will bring you to the land I swore you with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Then you will know. And the rest of the story, and we're not going to go through all of the plagues, but the rest of the story goes, all right, you know, like the, the game is on. And there is this epic battle between God and Pharaoh. And Moses, he does his hand trick and the leprosy trick, and 
and he throws the, the staff on the ground and turns into a snake, and, and his, his staff eats the other staff, and then he picks it up by the, ta- t- by the tail, and he's like, ta-da, you know, I, I think that's probably how it went. And, and, and then it's one plague after the next. He turns the Nile into blood, and he sends, uh, he sends frogs, and the frogs are everywhere. It's like, that's our dream, right, Ricky? You know, Ricky has a fear of frogs, and uh, we could talk about that for a while, but uh, that would be diverging. Uh, we all have our fears, and basically, you think, you know, that would be miserable, right? Frogs everywhere, like in your, you know, you pull the covers over, oh, look, frogs, woo like, awful, and it's not just like for a little bit, it's like for a while, and each plague, each moment, each challenge, each presentation of the plague is one reminder after the next that God is mightier than the gods of Pharaoh. And each of them, you can look at the, uh, and do ancient, uh, ancient studies on the gods that they worshipped, and each one is a representation of their power and what they were over, and God proves himself greater than each of the gods of Egypt. And to make it short and succinct, God shows himself to be greater than the gods of the sea and water when he converts, uh, when he uh, does the blood in the Nile. God shows him mightier than the gods of the sea and water. God shows himself mightier than the gods of earth and all that he does with the bugs and the frogs and all that. And he shows himself mightier than the gods of the sky and all that he does in those plagues. And so then what God is doing is showing himself and proving himself mightier than all the gods of Pharaoh. And the one that tips the scale is uh, the one where uh, we have uh, Passover and we have uh, the blood on the doorpost and God takes the firstborn of all of Egypt. God is showing himself more powerful than Pharaoh more powerful than Pharaoh's gods. The question is, is this story, part of the story that sort of weaves throughout it? You know that troubling little phrase where it says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart? You know, maybe after like three plagues, Pharaoh, if he didn't have a hardened heart, maybe would have said, you know, this is enough, Right? Like after the frog situation, like what more do you need, really? But God hardens his heart. And so there's this really sort of, there's a tension there. Like, does God, what is, what is God up to, right? He's hardened his heart, and why is this, you know, it becomes a sort of tension within us. Like, is God hardening more people's hearts? Like, what is God up to? And there's this, simple thought, and, and I think it's important, that if it was all about simply God liberating Israel, God could have softened, softened Pharaoh's heart. He could have obliterated Pharaoh. I mean, let's just, the snake could have ate Pharaoh, like he could have done that. God had a lot of options at his disposal, right? But instead, he chooses to harden the heart and Pharaoh becomes ever more stubborn. I mean, he's like that three-year-old kid, you know? <laughs> I don't know if your three-year-olds were stubborn. Mine were. Uh, but he becomes hardened in his position. 
And, and the more I've reflected on this, and because of this story, the story has been told again and again and again and again. It's the story of Israel over and over again. When they speak of their God, they speak of the God who delivered them out of Egypt. It becomes the theme of their life that God is more powerful than all the gods of all of creation. And if God merely snapped his fingers and delivered the Israelites in a moment of notice, the splendor of God, the knowledge of God would have been stifled. But because of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, God showed himself and proved himself through his mighty and outstretched arm that he is mightier and greater than all, uh, all, the all who might challenge him as the true God and to true creator over everything. Because of Pharaoh's heart and heart, in us we know unequivocally that there is no one like God. There is no one like the Lord God. And so it's that hardened position <laughs> that becomes a sort of uh, a training ground for the Israelites to know the God that we worship, the God that has delivered us, is the God over the sky, he's the God over the earth, and he's the God over the sea. There is no one like him. You know, this story repeats itself. The Israelites will find themselves in precarious situations over and over again, and, and the story, it, it leads them. When Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go, they, they take the sort of wrong path, like, there were other ways to get to Canaan, but they, you know, decided to go towards the sea, you know, and they aren't really people with boats. They don't do water very well, and they go right to the sea, and there becomes then this powerful moment in which Pharaoh thinks, I have a chance to go get him, and he's chasing him down, and all of his mighty uh, warriors are chasing down God's people, and God parts the waters, and the people of God pass through and God closes the waters down on Pharaoh's mighty army. And the chariots and the men are all washed away. As Christians, we believe that there is another moment in time in which God parts and God washes away and God floods the earth with his goodness and he does away with evil. All of us have found ourselves up. Uh, all of us have found to be true. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And our story is a story of, another God, of our God with outstretched arms, declaring his might and his grace for each and every one of us. It is through Christ's outstretched arms on the cross that he, that he parts the sea that we might pass through and have new life. It is through God's outstretched arms that we are delivered from sin and death. It's from God's outstretched arms that he restored sight to the blind. It's from God's outstretched arms that he broke bread and gave thanks and fed thousands. It is through Christ's outstretched arms that he reaches out to every single one of us that we might have life and freedom and hope and forgiveness. And it is through that story in which we learn of who God is, that 
Jesus would come and say, I know the Father, and now you know who the Father is because you have gotten to know me. And so the problems of our exile is an ignorance of God, an ignorance of his love, an ignorance of his grace, an ignorance of his goodness and his kindness to us all. And through Jesus Christ, we know who God the Father is because of the Son. It has me reflecting, and I'll make more note of it in next week's message, but discipleship needs two things. And that is, uh, when I mean discipleship, is it's growing up in our faith. It's learning to walk with Christ. It's trusting in Him. It's learning of His ways. Discipleship needs two pieces. If God looks at uh, Israel and He says, you know, they got a couple of problems. Their problem is they don't, they've forgotten who I am and they lack my presence. They aren't seeking me. They aren't seeking my will and they don't know who I am. Then maybe I need to show them I'm worth knowing. I will show them who I am. And so for me, when I reflect on this, I think, is my discipleship, am I seeking to know the Lord? Do I know his will? Do I know his love? Do I know Jesus Christ? Do I know and understand his teaching? Do I want to walk with him? Do I seek his will? Am I seeking to know Christ? Do I know him and am I seeking and appreciating and glorifying and practicing the presence of God? That's discipleship. We talk about it a lot and we say, hey, you need to be a disciple of Jesus. When I say that, I mean seek the Lord and know him and practice his presence. Be with him and know him. Know his heart, know his love, and walk with him in your life. When you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, you're saying, I want to know Jesus and I want to be with him. There's this... uh, Powerful thing in the story of Christ and his love. That each of us can respond to him. In Exodus, there's this weird moment. Moses is talking to Pharaoh. The frogs are all over the place. And Moses says, Pharaoh, it's up to you. It's up to you how long this goes. You just say the word and I'll take care of it. You just say when, and I will pray to God, and this will all be taken care of. And so, if you were Pharaoh, what would you say? Right now, right? <laughs> like, let's deal with it. What does Pharaoh say? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'm like, time out. Why would you say tomorrow? And there's a whole lot of things going on there, and I don't know. He's maybe just a bad decision maker. But he says, tomorrow. And I think, you know what? As much as I want to dog Pharaoh, how many of us, in the facing of our problems, in the hardness of our own hearts, in the midst of the despair and the life that we face, the challenges in our marriage, the challenges with our finances, the challenges that we all are going through, whether it's just the grief and loss of life, whether it's the challenges we face in our businesses, in our work, in our life. How many times do we go to God right then and there, or sometimes we just act like Pharaoh and we say, tomorrow. 
Let me spend one more night with the frog. Let me spend one more night with despair and frustration. Let me spend one more night with this bitterness that's growing in me. Let me spend one more night with all of this. Friends, we are invited to seek the Lord today. And I know that in each of your lives there are trials and there are struggles. There's things that are next that we are, we are scared of facing. But this story is a story that's been told from generation to generation to tell us that there is a God with an outstretched arm for you and an ear that listens to you. And he is strong enough to pick you up and to hold you and to heal you and help you and care for you, redeem you and deliver you and be with you. So today, I would ask that you would pray to God. Not ask him to deliver you tomorrow, but to to deliver you today. To turn your heart to him to know that you are saved and loved through Jesus Christ. Will you go to him today? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you hear us today. And on my behalf and the behalf of everyone here, Lord, we turn to you today and ask that you would bless and redeem and save, that you would turn our hearts towards you. Lord, we can have a lot residing in our hearts and our minds of anger, of frustration, of bitterness, of sadness, of grief. Lord, things that we hold on to that we need to turn to you. Lord, we deal with grief and bitterness that's much worse than the plagues that many face. The plagues of our own heart and our own mind. The evil done to us, the evil we've done, the sins against us and the sins we've done, the despair and the frustrations and the things, Lord, that would pile upon us. Lord, we don't want another day with them. So we give them to you. And we ask that your outstretched arms on the cross would continue to stretch out to us today. That we would know from the cross there is forgiveness and deliverance 